Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Home Field Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. Hello, old sports. Welcome to the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. I'm Dan Newman, and I am joined, as always, by my brother, Andrew Newman. We have a special first time ever here on Hello, Old Sports listener request, and we will talk about what that means in just a minute. Andrew, how are you doing? I am doing well, Dan. I am glad to... A, that we got a listener request, and B, that we're finally fulfilling it. Hopefully, the guy who requested it's still alive because it was quite <laughs> a while ago. But um, yeah. having a listener request means you have a listener. Exactly. And they requested an episode, not that you stopped doing this. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, and it's an interesting topic. I don't know that it's one that, I mean, I guess sort of if you think about like law of averages, like if we did this long enough, we'd probably have gotten to this topic, but it wasn't one we probably would have come up with on our own in the first year or so of doing the show. Yeah, it's interesting. I learned a few things that I didn't otherwise know. So um, yeah, I think it'll be uh, it'll be a good one for us to get into. So we receive there are a number of ways you can contact us. You can find us on Facebook at Hello Old Sports Podcast. You can Email us at helloworldsports at gmail.com. Or you can email us through the Sports History Network website at sportshistorynetwork.com. And this email came through to Arnie, the leader of our uh, Sports History Network, the football history dude. And it was a comment on one of our podcasts. And they asked uh, for a an episode on the go-go white Sox of the 1950s. So Ray, we will email you directly, but we, uh, this came in about six months ago. So we apologize for the delay and, but we're glad we're finally able to fulfill it. And so we're going to do a little episode here on the 1950s white Sox, the go-go white Sox. So thank you, Ray, to reaching out for us. And if you or anybody else has any, Additional requests that you'd like to see fulfilled for podcast topics, we are certainly willing to at least take a shot at those. If you get too far afield, then we may not do it. As as George Carlin once said, only if it's actually important to you, don't F with me just for the fun of it. So if there's something you actually, and that was on his website uh, way back, way back when. So we are ready to talk about the Chicago White Sox of the 1950s, particularly the 1959 team, which was known as the Go-Go White Sox. And we, again, would like to thank you all for listening. I mentioned previously how you can find us. You can also check us out. Uh, check out the network at sportshistorynetwork.com. Lots of, lots of great podcasts out there, and we just had a few new join uh, join just recently join up with the network so we're growing every month and we're really glad that we can be a part of it and we're really glad that you all can be a part of it so andrew let's uh let's go go and get to it let's talk about the 1959 white Sox. where we should start very briefly because anybody who 
here's where I'm about to go and knows how long we usually go in these episodes. It's like, oh my God, he's going to go back this far to get to 1959. But we should just start kind of briefly to set the stage and just talk about the White Sox as a franchise and their history. So we won't go way, way back. We'll just start in 1919, which was well-traveled ground if you're a sports history fan or really just a casual person about baseball history, you know, about the White Sox losing the 1919 World Series largely on purpose. And one day we will have to do an episode untangling a lot of the various myth-making about that, but that's its own story. So, you know, in the late half of the 19-teens, the White Sox, they had won a championship in 1906. And then in the late half of the teens, they had become one of the premier American League teams, second to the Red Sox. They win the World Championship in 1917. Then in 1919, they win the pennant. They lose the World Series largely on purpose. Like I said, they play most of the 1920 season until the final weekend when the hammer comes down, all those guys get suspended for, you know, banned for life, whatever terminology you want to use. And really the wheels fall off of the White Sox for a very long time after that. By 1921, they've fallen as far down as seventh. They finish in the second division every year from 1921 to 1936, which means they were in the bottom half of the league Back then, fifth, sixth, seventh, or eighth is what they finished. Even after they had a few years in the late 30s where they had a couple of third and fourth place finishes, but, you know, still finishing 20 or 25 games back of the American League pennant. Um, And they were led in those days by a shortstop who's in the Hall of Fame by the name of Luke Appling, who's a member of the Baseball Hall of Fame. He's known as old aches and pains because he was always talking about being injured. So... He was also apparently, in looking at his bio here, was also known as Luscious Luke. So Luscious Luke and Old Aches and Pains, two very different, very different nicknames there. And that's kind of the one bright spot for the team during those uh, those temporary, you know, few winning seasons in the late 1930s. Yep. And then through the war years again, it's some t- I looked real quick. I'm like, oh, I wonder if something fluky happened to them during the war years, like how the Browns won the pennant. No, they were still bad during the war. It doesn't really start to turn around until the 50s. And you can see starting in 1951, sort of a steady progression. They finish in fourth in 1951. And then in starting in 52 through 56, every year they're in second place, uh, mostly to the Yankees and Indians in that order. Obviously, in 54, the order was flipped, but that was really their the early fifties with a couple of third place finishes is really the most prolonged run of success that they'd had by far since the black Sox scandal in 1919 by 1955, they're able to finish as far back or as close as just eight games out of first place. And I'll just kind of clip it off there. Cause obviously we're going to start talking about the immediate buildup to this 1959 team, but um, really between 1921 and 1951, really dark times, no more than a handful of years over 500. By that point, if it wasn't already the case, it certainly was the case during that era where they became really second-class citizens to the Cubs in Chicago, even though the Cubs, it's not like the Cubs were winning World Series left and right either, but um, just sort of important to keep that in mind that as we're talking about this specifically this 1959 team the specter of a scandal that at that time was 40 years old still loomed large 
And in fact, it's been 40 years exactly, not only since the Black Sox scandal, but since they've made any World Series. And when they make it to the World Series in 59, they actually have the first ball thrown out by a pitcher by the name of Red Faber. And a it's caught by a catcher by the name of Ray Schalk, who were two of the clean players for the 1919 Black Sox team that did not throw the World Series both members of the Hall of Fame. Faber had actually been hurt during the 1919 World Series, but Schalke had played and had been one of the guys who was famously angry about his teammates, uh, obviously purposefully losing. So those players and that legacy still there about 40 years, exactly 40 years later. And just as a cool little aside to that, um, so I was reading a book about the 1869 Cincinnati Reds, the first professional team went undefeated, had as close to an undisputed claim to the championship as you could have back then. 50 years later is 1919. And that's when the Reds are in their first championship series since 1869. And they have a few remaining guys from the 1869 team there for the first two games of the World Series in 1919. Obviously, that really never gets brought up because all anybody talks about in 1919 is the White Sox, but just kind of a funny parallel that that World Series had guys who were baseball players in 1869 there, and then some of the guys in that series were at the 1959 World Series. So there's like a 90-year difference there. Yeah, where they like overlapped. You know, There were guys in the same building who... We're at those two events on the other uh, ends of the spectrum. So I think if we're going to talk about the 59 White Sox, we have to start with their manager, and that is a Hall of Fame manager, a guy by the name of Al Lopez, who was a catcher in the major leagues during the 30s and 40s. He's a two-time All-Star, never really does much of note, never is on a, I don't believe is ever on note, never on a pennant-winning team. But he is probably best known, at least as a player, as being a protege of Casey Stengel. Casey Stengel, before coming to the Yankees, was a manager in the American League. I'm sorry, was a manager in the National League with both the uh, Brooklyn Dodgers and uh, later the Boston Braves. And I think those were the were those the only two teams that Stengel managed in the National League. Yeah, just Brooklyn and Boston. He manages in Brooklyn from 34 to 38. And then in Boston with the Braves from 39 to 43, I think it's in Boston where Stengel gets hit by a cab and breaks his leg and the Boston sports writers vote the cab driver, the most valuable player on the Braves that year. So Casey Stengel's later success does not come into being till he joins the Yankees with both Boston and Brooklyn. He is very much a second division manager in the National League, but one of his best players and one of the guys who he mentors the most is Al Lopez. In fact, he's on both teams. He's with Stengel in Brooklyn. And then when Stengel moves on to Boston and goes to the Braves, La Lopez eventually follows him to the Boston Braves. So Lopez learns his baseball from Casey Stengel and is hired to manage the Cleveland Indians in the early 1950s. Let me get the exact year, 51. 
And this is a team that had just won the World Series three years ago in 48. And this is the, the Indians team of Bob Feller and Lou Boudreau and Larry Doby, although Boudreau might have been gone by that point because Boudreau was the manager and that Lopez took over for. So he manages Hall of Famers, Doby, Feller, Bob Lemon. They are consistently a very, very good team in the early 1950s, these Indians under Al Lopez at 93 wins, 93, 92, you know, finishing in second place to the Yankees, as Andrew mentioned, pretty much every year. And then in 54, the Indians team goes to the World Series. They win 111 games. They beat out the Yankees for the 1954 American League pennant. And despite their record-breaking winning total of 111 games, which I think was may have been the American League record until the uh, the Mariners did did it in 2001. Mm-hmm. Oh, was it the 98 Yankees? Yes. 98 Yankees had 114, right? Yes. And then they write the Mariners two years, uh, three years later had 116. Lopez in 56 gets frustrated about how poorly, and then we should also mention that that Indian team then gets swept by the Giants in 54 in four games in the World Series. It's this huge upset. That's the World Series with the famous Willie Mays catch and four-game sweep for Leo DeRocher and the Giants. In 57, Lopez gets tired of the way the Cleveland fans are treating the Indian players, leaves Cleveland, goes to the White Sox. Keep in mind also that he's following another Hall of Famer who's the owner, Bill Veck. And Veck who'd previously owned the, and when we say owner, it was a little bit different in those days because it wasn't just the guy who owned the team. Vec would not only be the managing partner of these teams from an ownership point of view, he also was the guy who ran the day in and day out operations of whatever team it was that he was owning at the time. He gets his start in... Um, he try, he's, he's also well-known. The first thing he does is he tries to buy the Phillies and stock them with Negro League players during World War II when the Landis and some of the other baseball powers that be shut that down. He owns the Indians for a time in the late 1940s, uh, leads them to what's still their most recent World Series win in 1948. He's well-known for being the first American League manager to sign African-American players, including the legendary Satchel Paige, spends a couple of years with the St. Louis Browns, the terrible St. Louis Browns in the 1950s. And that is where he performs probably his biggest stunt as an owner. He had always done things like fan manager day where the manager of the team would sit on the dugout in a rocking chair with a robe and slippers on. And the fans would be given cards that would say yes and no and put in a new pitcher or bunt or steal. And he would literally, Vec would literally have the fans manage the game. And it was another stunt. And then there's obviously his most famous stunt, which was in 1951 when he sent up a, little person known as a midget in those days, a guy by the name of Eddie Goodell, who was, I think, how tall was Goodell? I think he was four foot one or something like that. Three foot seven. He was even shorter. Yeah. 
Eddie Goodell was three foot seven. He wore number one eight as his uniform number. He walked on four straight pitches and was pulled for a pinch runner. Major League Baseball the following year after he had done this, then went on to pass a rule that said midgets could not be used in games. In his autobiography, Vec writes, what about Phil Rizzuto? Is he just a tall midget or is he a short, regular person? So who was he looking for an answer from on that? About what constituted a midget? Yeah, I think he was being rhetorical. He thought it was unfair what the league was doing to him. Okay. So, so then in the 50s, Vec sells the St. Louis Browns and then buys a controlling interest in the White Sox. And this is something that you really real quick. I, I, I'm looking for the exact thing on. OK, this is this is what I was looking for for the Bill Vec story for him leaving St. Louis. So he goes to St. Louis and yeah, it, it almost seems now like, of course, St. Louis was a Cardinals town and it was even by then. But they both played in Sportsman Park, which was owned by the Browns. And the Cardinals had fallen on a little bit of hard times after the war. It was certainly not their peak era. You know, they they had a few already and they would have many more. So he gets to it's uh, in 1952 while raising the Browns level of ineptitude only from eighth to seventh place. He managed nearly to double their gate to 518,000. So with all these gimmicks and everything, they had drawn that many only three other times. So we're financially ascendant. And then it says, this is a quote from Beck. It said, I would have run the Cardinals out of St. Louis. I'm sure of it. He wrote in his candid and candid and entertaining biography. Beck is in wreck. The thing was that, except for one thing, the thing was that the Cardinals owner, Fred S A I G H. Do you know how to pronounce that? I do not go with Sai, whom Vec deemed a soft sparring partner, had been forced by tax and legal troubles to sell the team, and that the buyer in February of 1953 was Mr. Budweiser himself, August A. Gussie Bush, with his full-bodied and well-formed bankroll. I knew I wasn't going to run Gussie Bush out of town. I had been knocked out of the box. So the fa- he was right in that the Cardinals owner was on the ropes, but rather than selling them to a businessman from a, you know, Kansas City or whatever city wanted in on Major League Baseball, they sold them to the biggest magnate in St. Louis at the time, who obviously the family still owns today. So just a little bit of color for why he left the Browns. And while that's going on, there's an internal feud in Chicago among another famous baseball family, the Comiskey family, and they decide to sell the team as a result of some of this family friction and Vec buys the team just in time for the 59 season. And that ends up being the first pennant in 40 years. Why don't we talk a little bit about some of the players on this team? And I think we should probably start with their ace pitcher in 1959. And that is a hall of famer by the name of early win. Now early win has been in baseball for quite some time. He's been in the league. He's one of the few guys that plays Major League Baseball in four different decades. He starts his career in 1939 with the Washington Senators and then doesn't retire until 1963 after his second stint with the Cleveland Indians. Wynn is a guy who follows Vec from Cleveland to Chicago. He had been on the 54 team. He led the league in wins with, at a, with a 23 and 11 record. 
on that great 1954 Indians team. And he had shared the rotation with Hall of Famers, Bob Feller and Bob Lemon. He actually I shouldn't even say it's I guess it's more coincidence almost because I don't believe Vec doesn't buy the team until 59, but uh, Wynn actually gets there the year before. So it's actually not a case of one guy of the man of the player following the team president. It's actually just a coincidence that Vec ends up owning another team with early Wynn as a star pitcher. But early Wynn at the age of 39, who and at this point he is almost entirely reliant on knuckleball goes 22 and 10. He leads the league with 255 innings pitched in 37 starts and is not only the Cy Young winner, but is the number three in the MVP voting in the American league. And we'll talk in a few minutes about who's one and two. And that's the ace of the 59 white Sox is the 39 year old future hall of famer knuckleball pitcher early win. They also get a good, really good year out of Bob Shaw, who's 26 in 1959. He goes 18 and six, actually has an ERA that's much lower than wins at 2.69. He starts 26 games, 12 complete or eight complete games, obviously, for the time, you know, actually a little lower than you would expect. But um, he's their only other pitcher who finishes with a winning record. And well, their their fifth a guy who started a handful of games for them went eight and five. But their other two starting pitchers actually were under 500 for the year. Billy Pierce was 14 and 15, and Dick Donovan was 9 and 10. But um, by virtue of the two of them going 44 and, and 16 combined, obviously that's, uh, that's enough of a cushion where you can withstand some relatively average pitching from the rest of the rotation. And Pierce is another good pitcher. He doesn't necessarily have the best year this year, but he had won the ERA title with an ERA under two in 1955, which for the 1950s with all the offense exploding is a very impressive feat. He's an all-star in 59 along with win. He had actually won 20 games in both 56 and 57. So a little bit of a down year for Pierce, but he is definitely a very good solid pitcher, seven time all-star for the White Sox. Billy Pierce is well known, and this is unique for the time. He is known for refusing to brush back players who are crowding the plate, much to the anger of many of his teammates and managers. But he's he's a very, I guess, just a very gentle man, and he refuses to brush back players who crowd the plate. And they also have two relievers that they use a lot. Uh, each of them appears in over... Uh, 60 or 60 games and 67 games, respectively. They both, using modern criteria, had what you would consider 15 saves, but each pitching 93 and 116 innings, respectively. Jerry Staley, who was 38, so almost as old as Win, went eight and five with a 2.24 ERA, didn't start any games, but finished 37 games, 116 innings, 111 hits, 39 runs. 25 walks, 54 strikeouts, and then Turk Lown, who was 35 years old himself. So they're getting a lot out of two relievers in their mid to late 30s. Turk Lown also finishes 37 games. He ends up with a 9-2 and two record and a 2.89 ERA. And like I said, using modern stats, they would both be credited with 15 saves. So, you know, we're in an era where really, it's not, you know, it's not 1906 anymore where guys finish their games almost no matter what, but it's also not 
like it is now where, you know, if a guy gets you through five innings, you might use six pitchers to get through the next four innings. But I think that, you know, the Stangle Yankees had really used a lot of relievers at this time. It's, you know, the Stangle Yankees are sort of the monolithic American League dynasty and the game is changing. You know, I think sometimes with relief pitching, people make it seem like there was never any relievers you pitched until, you know, if you started, you pitched the whole game, no matter whether you were pitching good, bad or ugly. And then starting in the 70s, Goose Gossage started being a reliever. People don't realize that, yeah, there was a lot of evolution of uses of relief. And honestly, one of the key examples of that is a guy who's not on this team, but who joins the White Sox four years later is another knuckleball pitcher by the name of Hoyt Wilhelm, who actually um, has a couple seasons as a starter. But by and large, Wilhelm is a reliever for most of his career breaks in with the giants in 1952 and has a 15 and three record. And in 71 games without a single start as a rookie finishes fourth in the MVP voting Hoyt Wilhelm is the father in some ways, not only of modern knuckleball pitchers, but also of modern relief pitchers. And like I said, he is not on this team, but he is a white Sox starting in 1963 and I think in a lot of ways, maybe is, is, is best remembered as a White Sox, as a White Sox or an Oriole. I think is, uh, as an Oriole, he gave up one of Roger Maris's last home he, runs in 61. He, it was either 58 or 59, I think. He's best remembered from the movie 61, where he's the guy they bring in so that Maris can't break the record in 154 games and break okay. it down. Yeah. So a couple of things with that in the movie, the conceit of it is they bring Wilhelm in because this is Maris's last chance to break the record without the asterisk. Now there was never an asterisk. It was just two separate records, but this was game one fifty four. the movie. And honestly, this may be the truth. The movie makes it seem like the Orioles only brought him in, even though he usually only pitched with a lead. They only brought him. They were basically bringing their closer in in a game. They were losing to not let Maris have a, you know, to not let him hit a home run in his last at bat in game mm-hmm. one or to tie Ruth in a, in 154 games. From what I know of the movie, the Wilhelm part was accurate. The motivation parts, I don't, you know, who knows if that was accurate. So you had that right. I'm sorry. I knew he played a role mm-hmm. in the Maris. I thought he had given up one of the later, the last home runs of Maris for that season, but you're right. It was not that he, he was one of the guys who shut Maris down in that 154th game. So anyway, just to kind of put a point on that, a guy who, again, not on this team, but is on the team a couple of years later on the White Sox is a, an example of an, an early relief pitcher. I want to just su- circle back a little bit on Bill Pierce here. I have a book that's uh, I think I'll put this in the show notes. I must have gotten this used somewhere. It's very it's very contemporary. It's actually called the go-go Chicago White Sox. It's a history of the White Sox, but it it ends in like 1960. So it's a, it's an old book, but uh, the writer says experts assert that Pierce would already have 200 games, 200 games won, that is, if he weren't such a nice fellow. And Pierce is quoted in response to those type of sentiments. He says, let's just say that I'm the way I am. I love to play baseball, but I don't want to risk hurting anyone just to chalk up a win. When I leave, I want to remember that I played the game the way it was supposed to be played as a game. I'll have to live with myself after I've been forgotten as a White Sox pitcher. So Billy Pierce, uh, one of the other stars of the 
1959 White Sox pitching staff. Why don't we talk a little bit about the position players? There's four guys that I think are worth noting. And I think you have to start with this Hall of Fame infield of Luis Aparicio and Nellie Fox, who, in addition to being the starting shortstop and second baseman of the White Sox, also finished number one and two in the American League MVP voting that year with Fox winning it and Aparicio finishing in second place. Yeah, so if you're keeping track at home, that's the top three, all being White Sox in uh, the MVP voting, and they get the Cy Young as well. Fox is very much in his prime at this point. He's 31 years old. Aparicio is still a little younger. He's 25. Obviously, defenders up the middle, that's your double play combination. From an offensive standpoint, Fox, 306 on the year with a 316 on base percentage. Fox had 191 hits, so just under the 200 hit mark. Only two home runs, which is not uncommon for a middle infielder in the 1950s, but he did end up with 70 RBIs. Aparicio hits 257, 316 on base percentage. Excuse me. I flipped them before. Now Nelly Fox had a 380 on base percentage. Both of these guys play in basically every game, 156 and 152 games respectively. So I'm guessing for Fox, that includes a couple of rainouts because we're still in the era of 154 games. You know, both have really good years in addition to, I'm assuming, both being considered excellent defenders. You can correct me if I'm wrong on that, but... um... Well, Aparicio wins 13 gold gloves Mm -hmm. in his career. Fox only wins three, but still a a good fielder. Aparicio is the one who is the great fielder. He, like I said, 13 gold gloves in his career, spends most of his career with the White Sox and then a little bit of time later on with Baltimore, wins a World Series with Baltimore in 66, uh, and then goes back to the White Sox for a little while and then closes out his career in the early 70s with Boston. So an American leaguer through and through, but... 59, one of his best seasons. This is his one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and I think nine years in a row leading the league in steals. Aparicio, every year from his rookie year in 56, where he's rookie of the year, all the way through to 64 with the Orioles at the age of 30, he leads the league in steals. So basically, this is a guy who leads the American League in steals for his entire 20s. And he is a big part of the reason why they get this nickname of the Go Go White Sox because of the running and the stealing that he does. And then Fox, uh, in addition to an MVP season in 1959, one of the things that Fox is well known for is a consecutive game streak. He, as the season begins, he played in 513 consecutive games, which breaks the White Sox record. It had previously been held by another second baseman of Eddie Collins. And the streak would have been almost a thousand if in August of 55, the Marty Marion, who was the manager of the White Sox at the time, had forced Fox to take a game off in the ending part of the, the tail end of the 1955 season. So that had he not taken that one game off, it would have been almost a thousand games by the time the 1959 season rolled along. And as you mentioned, he played in every game in 1959 so the streak would have continued all the way through until the following year so yeah fox plays in no less than 154 games from 1953 
all the way through to 1959. And even then in 60, he goes up to only goes down to 150. And then the following year, they, they expand the schedule, but then he's, he's still playing close to 160 games for the next couple of years. So a very durable iron man of the Chicago white Sox of the 1950s and the MVP in 1959. I think the thing also to emphasize with this team is they had good pitching and I have an article here from the Chicago tribune about looking back and using some modern statistics. And it says the advanced stats aren't as friendly to the pitching as sort of the more traditional stats, but it really shows how good they were defensively, but offensively, I mean, it's not a team with a lot of offense. You look at Sherm Waller, the catcher leads the team in home runs with 22. Uh, Nobody else has more than 17. He also has 84 RBIs. The next closest guy down is Fox with 70 RBIs, what you'd consider the starting lineup. The only guy who hits 300 is Fox. The next closest down is the right fielder, Jim McEnany at 276. It's not, and this is still, you know, we're seven, eight years away from the pitching, really the year of the pitcher. Like it's still very much a hitters era. So this is not a great offensive team. No. And that's one, a move they make, which I'm sure we'll talk about as we go through the year is really a, was a move that they needed to make to get themselves in a position to have enough offense to win the pennant. Yeah. I want to talk real quick about Sherm Lawler, who's their starting catcher. Lawler's an interesting guy. He actually has a World Series ring from the Yankees in 1947. This was before Stengel was the manager. This was when Bucky Harris was still managing the Yankees. And they didn't really know. Bill Dickey had retired the year before, and they really didn't know where they were going at catcher. Everybody sort of thought that Yogi Berra was going to be the Yankee catcher of the future. But he had a lot of defensive issues in 1947, and they were seriously considering the fact that Vera might be better suited to being an outfielder. And in the 47 World Series, Jackie Robinson just runs amok on Yogi Berra to the point where they don't start him at catcher in every game of the series. And one of the guys that they replace him with is Sherm Lawler, who had only played about 10 games for the Yankees in the regular season, but he gets two starts in the World Series, and that results in a Yankee championship in seven games and a World Series ring for uh, Mr. Sherm Lawler. And I think it's only after that in 48 and 49 when, and 49, especially when Stengel comes in, that they realize that Barrow really is going to be there catcher of the future and they ship Sherm Lawler out and he kind of uh, bounces around a couple different places before he lands with the White Sox in the 50s. So a guy, I don't know if he's the only guy on that team who has a World Series ring in 59 going into the series, going into the season, but a guy who, if things had maybe broken just a little differently, might have been the catcher for the Yankees throughout the 1950s instead of Yogi Berra. I'll be honest, I did not know that. It's interesting to think about. I think they made the right decision, but I think they did. You know, we've kind of set the table. I have a couple of things during the season that especially something in April that I think is worth talking about. Did you have anything to to get into before that? No, I think there's one more player that we want to touch on, but I think that comes a little bit more as the season goes on. So please go ahead. Sure. So the season starts. And I mean, look, obviously you'd be stupid in going into 1959. The Yankees are the overwhelming favorites to win the American League pennant as they've done 
all but one year since 1949 at this point. And of course, in 19, when they didn't win it, the one year was Al Lopez's Cleveland Indians. But the White Sox are, are probably considered a top half team. Right? And I think it's also worth considering, and, and again, we don't want to make this all just about the Yankees, but the year that the Yankees lost the pennant to Lopez and the Indians in 54, they actually won more games than they had won in any of the previous five seasons while they were winning the World Series. So the Yankees had been very, very good every year for a decade. So this is a game. It's in April. It's against the Kansas City A's, um, who notoriously were terrible the whole time they were in Kansas City. We go into the seventh inning. Uh, the White Sox are already leading eight to six. And I'm reading from a Sabre article. Uh, it says Tom Gorman assumed the pitching duties for Kansas City at the start of the seventh inning. Ray Boone, the first batter, reached first on a throwing error. I'm going to skip some names just to get the details in. Reached first on a throwing error. Al Smith bunted and was safe when the ball was bobbled, trying to make a barehanded pickup. Johnny Callison lined a single to right to score Boone. And when Maris fumbled the ball, Smith scored and Callison advanced to third. Aparicio walked and stole second base and Shaw walked to fill the bases. Gorman was removed for the game after throwing two balls. Mark Freeman took over and walked Turgis in to score Callison. Fox walked to force Aparicio with the fourth run of the inning. Landis forced Shaw at the plate, but Freeman passed Lawler and the fifth run strolled home. The sixth athletic pitcher, George Burnett of the day, then took over. A walk to Boone saw Fox trot home with the sixth run of the inning. Al Smith walked to score Landis. Callison was hit by a pitch, scoring Lawler with the inning's eighth run. Lou Sezikis ran for Callison, who had suffered a bruised arm. Aparicio walked to force home Boone. Shaw struck out. Brunette passed Bubba Phillips and Fox, pushing across the final two runs of the inning. Ten walks in one inning. The White Sox scored 11 runs on one hit. Seventh inning of this game against Kansas City. They really did play small ball. They didn't play any ball. They they played not swing the bat. Um, (laughs) Just figured that was interesting. Like I said, I skipped over some of the names to not make it too confusing. But uh, yeah, 11 runs on one hit. But two two names you did mention that I should sort of flag. First of all, Ray Boone. uh, It was the father of Bob Boone, the later all-star catcher with the Angels. And then the grandfather of Aaron Boone and Yankees postseason hero and current manager, at least for the time being, Aaron Boone. So Aaron Boone and Aaron Boone, you mean Brett Boone and Aaron Boone? Yeah, I'm sorry. Brett Boone. He was, yes, he was the grandfather of both Brett Boone and and Aaron Boone. And then I would also mention by the time this airs, former Yankee manager, very possibly. Yeah. Depending on my editing skills and if they can ever win a game, we're recording this on, September 9th for uh, for two to nothing to Toronto. Oh my God! Yeah, it's, it's been a tough uh, been a tough week for the Yankees. So yeah, September 9th for posterity. By the time you all hear this in a few weeks, we'll either be in the midst of a turnaround and getting ready for the playoffs, or perhaps a tremendous collapse. And then you also mentioned Johnny Callison, who I I don't know if he was a rookie or he was a very young player that year. And then he was somebody who was mentioned when we did the Dick Allen thing with our father. He mentioned that uh, Callison gets traded to the Phillies after this year. And our father mentioned, our dad mentioned that Callison was his other favorite player on those Phillies teams of the sixties, other than Richie Allen. So Callison goes on to be much better known with a different team. So I'm just going to kind of go over the beginning part of the season here. You know, they're, 
for the most part, they're in second place for a good portion into May, largely within striking distance in early June. They move up to first place and stay there for a little while. Then they fall back down to second place. I'm trying to get to the all-star break here. So when you get to the all-star break, they're 43 and 35. They're in second place. They're two games back. I guess this would be the first all-star game. This was during that era. They're two games back. I was just going to go over some of the guys who were all-stars for this White Sox team this year. Sure. Yep. So the first all-star game, again, if you heard our thing on the History of the All-Star Game. This is the first one, which is in Pittsburgh. The American League rosters for this first All-Star Game. The starting lineup, well, I'm just going to do White Sox. Early win is the starting pitcher. Nelly Fox is the second baseman. Luis Aparicio is the shortstop. Billy Pierce also makes the team. And then as some reserves, Sherm Lawler is there. And I guess that's it in the first game. And then let me just do the second game real quick because the rosters were slightly different. I looked at this and I'm pretty sure it was the same in both games. Fox, Aparicio, uh, early win is on the White Sox there. Well, it's a little different because Billy Pierce is not on the second team. Oh, okay. And then Sherm Lawler. So it's basically the same guys. But yeah, maybe maybe a couple of substitutions for injuries or whatever. So, you know, they're in the hunt. There are a couple of games back, but like we mentioned, the offense is pretty brutal. Or it's it's probably not going to be good enough to deliver a pennant. So should we go now? Did you have anything you wanted to talk about before we went to this the move they make in August? No, let's go ahead and talk about uh, Big Clue. Yeah, so they, I'm trying to get the, uh, yep, I'm going to go the numbers. So... White Sox took over first place for good on July 28th, 1959. Obviously, they wouldn't have known that at the time. But the Argo, Illinois native and slugging first baseman Ted Klazuski. Did I get that right? I can never get that right. Yep, Klazuski. To the south side, August 25th. So obviously later than you're allowed to make trades now. First baseman, you know, very famously, they got one of the first guys to really show off the bulging biceps in the era before what we consider modern weightlifting, you know, you always hear them talk about how muscular Mickey Mantle was. And it's the, it was more like farm boy strength. I don't think Mickey Mantle really spent a lot of time in the gym. Um, And Klazuski was like one of the first guys to cut off his sleeves. Yeah. Yeah. So he had been with the reds uh, in the mid fifties was kind of his heyday. He was 34 by the time they acquire him from the pirates. They trade a guy named Harry suitcase Simpson for him. And he comes in and really is the shot in the arm. He comes with a, with a little bit of a pedigree from Cincinnati. He'd been on some teams that had won, you know, done some winning, which not many of these guys on the White Sox had. He hit his first comes in and with the White Sox right away has a few good games. He hits 357 in the 32 regular season games he played with the White Sox. So basically the last month of the year, he hits 297, two home runs, 10 RBIs is pretty much immediately becomes the regular first baseman every day. They talk about a game in September against the A's where he had a a run scoring hit in a two to one win. And then in the nightcap of the doubleheader, he scored, he hit two homers and gives them a 13 to seven victory. And a lot of times you hear about this, a team that, you know, they really, they've got a nice core and maybe they're overachieving, but they kind of need to bring in a guy from somewhere else. It's usually a veteran guy. It's a guy who brings something that's sorely lacking, doesn't always work, but in this case, it's a pretty good example of, you know, the the veteran pickup to plug a hole that gives the team a little bit of a jolt. 
And Klazuski had been a major stud of the 1950s. I, he led the league in God, this guy, I got to look 54 with Cincinnati. He was second in MVP voting. He damn near won the triple crown. He led the league in home runs with 49 in RBIs with 141. And he had a 326 batting average. I want to see if I can find out who led the league in batting and then the national league in batting in 1954, because it must not have been. Let me see where he was. In... Yeah, I'm going to, I'll go over some, his sort of his heyday, the years you can trace as being his most dominant years were 53 to 56, 50 all with Cincinnati. This is his late twenties to his early thirties. I'll just give you his power numbers. 53. He's 40 home runs and 108 RBIs. 54, he's 49 and 141. 55, 47 and 113. And then 56, 35 and 102. He's he's fifth in batting average in 1954 behind four guys, one of whom is Don, Don Mueller, who was a member of the New York Giants. And then the other three are Mays, Snyder, and Stan Musial. So... He finishes behind some decent guys. He hurts his back in, I think, I think it's in the 57 season. And precipitous drop off after that. So, yeah, he goes from 35 home runs to six. And then he then has, doesn't have a season with double digit home runs until his final year in 61, where he hits uh, 15 home runs. So, yeah, this is a guy who was on his way to the Hall of Fame if he hadn't hurt his back. Correct me if I'm wrong, by the way, but 61 would have been the first year of the Angels, and that was who he was on, was the Angels, right? Correct. Yeah, he finishes out his go- career with the LA Angels. You know, two uh, it's actually a nice little symmetry there. Do you know what their home stadium was in 1961? It was called Wrigley Field, wasn't it? Yeah, they, there was the Home Run Derby Field. Oh, that's right, that's right, that's right. A couple of things. A, I think he was on that show in, the, in 59 or whatever it was when that was airing. Mm-hmm. And B... That gave new meaning to Bandbox. So having a little bit of a power resurgence that year probably made some sense. And the guy he's traded for is a guy named Harry Suitcase Simpson, who said that. I know you did, but I'm I'm elaborating a bit. He was known as Suitcase, and everybody always thought it was because he was always getting traded and was always, you know, hit with a suitcase. Like he would go up without a bat. (laughs) I think that's why they called him that. The most famous trade he's involved in is actually with the Yankees in 1957 when the Yankees finally, uh, George Weiss finally gets tired of Billy Martin and ships Martin out of town. And Simpson is one of the guys that they bring back in the trade. He only lasts about a year with the Yankees when the Yankees trade him to somewhere else. But it actually turns out that he was called that because he was shaped like a suitcase. I don't know exactly how, but it was not because of the fact that he was constantly getting traded. So Involved in another high-profile trade in 1959 when the White Sox bring in big clue Ted Klazuski for the final pennant and World Series push. So I want to talk about a couple of things as we get towards the end of the year, but I want to kind of go, let me see if I can just sort of summarize the last few weeks of the season, the pennant race, that kind of thing, how close they got when they clinched it so you know we talked about they did go ahead for good in late july obviously they didn't know that at the time by august 27th they're only up a game and a half and then they go on quite kind of a run where they get up in a week they get up six and a half 
And then after that, the lead never really gets below four and a half until they've clinched the pennant. So that early run, late August into early September, they gained five games basically in the course of five days, get themselves up six and a half. They're able to clinch the pennant. I want to tell the story about the the day they win the pennant, which is, uh, are you familiar with this? I think I found the same story. Does it involve sirens? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Why don't you go ahead? The White Sox are playing in. It looks like the White Sox are playing in Cleveland against the Indians. They on September 23rd, they get a double play to win the pennant. This article says back in Chicago at 1030 p.m. And again, this is 1959. The air raid sirens jumped to life. For five minutes, they screamed, blaring the terrifying warning of incoming Soviet bombers. In the middle of the Cold War, that's what many residents thought. Just a few months earlier, the Tribune had reported how a mock megaton hydrogen bomb had quote-unquote killed 229,625 and injured 622,000 and spread a vast cloud of deadly radiation. So this was obviously, that was a mock simulation Thousands of residents poured into the streets, looking to the sky and asking neighbors if it was real. One woman woke up her children. The Tribune reported, a man said he locked himself in the closet with a bottle of beer. (laughs) Another man jumped in his car and raced to Wisconsin. It says many residents, especially fans watching the game on WGN, immediately understood that the sirens were part of the celebration. He talks about how Bell telephone switchboards were flooded with calls from confused and scared residents. City Hall received calls at 1100 an hour. Mayor Richard Daly showed off his allegiance. He explained the signs were sounded in the hilarity and exuberance of the evening. I regret if anyone was inconvenienced. Yeah, thinking nuclear war was happening was <laughs> an inconvenience. It says Fire Commissioner Robert Quinn took full responsibility. It was intended as a tribute to a great little team. Seems like he was probably the fall guy for the mayor. <laughs> the, yeah. sentiment was, the sentiment was anger, was echoed by angry letter writers to the Tribune who asked which nincompoop was responsible <laughs> Anyone de- and demanded anyone so stupid as to sound the air raid alarm simply to celebrate a vac- baseball victory should be immediately removed from his post. Um, and I think I read that the mayor actually refused to fire the fire chief. Said the White Sox flew back into Midway at about 2 a.m. to find a huge, raucous crowd, not knowing they were wading into an odd mix of joy and anger. They <laughs> <laughs> paraded down State Street. So, I mean, this was a huge deal. It's, you know, winning the pennant in the American League meant you beat out the Yankees. And even though the main competition in 59 was from the Indians, it was, you know, it was a huge deal. So they win the pennant. Obviously, a little drama around the air raid. Um, I wanted to talk about the go-go name. I will be honest. I never understood what it meant. I was like, I, for, I think when I was a kid, I kind of conflated that with 17 or 18 years later when they wore shorts. Mm-hmm. I was like, was that why they called them that? I didn't, you know, in my head as a kid, I was like, oh, I don't know. what. But a big part of it was during the 1959 season, a song came out called Let's Go, Go, Go White Sox. Mm-hmm. Let's go, comma, go, go White Sox. This was in an era where a lot of teams would have kind of jingles and song and the lyrics of the song are, I'm not going to read all of these white Sox, white Sox, go, go white Sox. Let's go, go, go white Sox. We're with you all the way. You're always in there fighting, blah, 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 blah. But the chorus repeats, let's go, go, go white Sox. Chicago is proud of you like that. Like you'll still hear 
the Go Cubs Go song, sort of the same kind of thing. That's had a little more staying power, but you know, it's it's the same sort of thing where a lot of teams have their own jingle song, kind of an older school thing. Meet the Mets is a good example of. Yeah, absolutely. Should we? Did you have anything more on the regular season, or should we talk about the World Series? Or yeah, why don't we go on to the World Series? And I guess maybe we should talk a little bit about the team that they play, because that's the Dodgers and the Dodgers who were only in their second year in Los Angeles. They had obviously left Brooklyn at the end of the '57 season, and this team is kind of a weird kind of in between from the classic boys of summer Dodgers that had been in Brooklyn 40s and 50s and the Dodger teams of the 60s that would go on to win the World Series in 63 and 65 and lose it in 66. Drysdale's the ace. Koufax is on the team. He's a regular starter by this point, but he's still not very good. He's a few years away from this classic Koufax renaissance where he's the best pitcher of all time for about five years he's he's only eight and six with a 4.05 era they still have johnny padres who was one of the leaders of the brooklyn team pitching staff in the late 50s clem labine is still the closer gil hodges is still at first base duke snyder's in the outfield cara farillo still a part of the team plays in the world series erskine's still on the team too right is Erskine still on that team? Um, the six guys I had listed that I associate with the Brooklyn team is Hodges, Snyder, Ferrillo, Padres, Labine, and Erskine. Erskine pitches 10 games. He has an ERA of 7.71. And say he was good. Does not appear in the World Series. I wonder if he even makes the whole year, Erskine, or if he you know gets released at some point in 59. Let me see if I... I don't see anything in the transactions. Let me check one more thing here. I wonder when While you're doing that. I'll just like the Dodgers are a good example because of the move, but also like when I think in my head real quick of highlights of the Brooklyn Dodgers, like even the very late Brooklyn Dodgers, you know, 56, the Don Larson perfect game or the year before when they win it, you immediately associate those images with black and white. Mm-hmm. Say to me, the 63 Dodgers that's immediately in color. Yeah. 59 is a bit of both, you know, because to me, I'm like, well, it's in L.A., so is it color? You know what I mean? It's like it's it's really there's they're playing in the L.A. Coliseum like it's this is the first World Series since 1946 where no part of it is played in New York. Obviously, for a lot of those years, all of it was played in New York. But this is the first time since the Red Sox and the Cardinals in 46, 48 to the Indians and the Braves. But. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Your point, so, uh, your your point still stands. Forty-eight. I think I wrote forty-eight, and I couldn't couldn't read my letter. Um, I think that's probably what happened. Um, yeah. So it's it's the first time in in you know a decade at least since none of the New York teams have been involved, or you know, none of it's in New York. Erskine's off the team by June, by the way. His last appearance of his career is in June. First World Series on the West Coast. Obviously, it's only the second year for the Dodgers and and Giants out there. First World Series for the White Sox since 1919. You know, just a very different kind of look than the Yankees against the Brooklyn Dodgers or the couple of years before that, the Yankees against the Milwaukee Braves. And the Dodgers do have some of the guys who would become major members of the teams of the 60s. 
Maury Wills, who is later one of the great base stealers of all time, including uh, in an MVP season in 62. John Roseborough, who's the guy who replaces Campanella as the catcher and goes on to be the, you know, the mentor to Drysdale and Koufax and all these other great pitchers. So you have guys, a couple guys who go back on the team all the way to the almost the Jackie Robinson days. And then you have other guys who will stay on the team all the way through, uh, you know, the, the mid sixties in the Koufax and Drysdale era. So in a very kind of transitional period for the Dodgers in 59. And they're also, I think it's worth noting, they're playing in the LA Coliseum, the classic home of the USC Trojans and uh, the LA Rams at various times in their history. And Raiders too. And the Raiders too. That's right. The Raiders play in the Coliseum for a while. You can look at pictures of this World Series and it's crazy. It's just this vast sea of fans and this what looks like this tiny baseball stadium, you know, home plate in some of these pictures looks minuscule. Over 90,000 fans at three straight World Series games, still the highest number of fans ever to see a World Series game. Yeah. And they do have to, by the way, the, the Dodgers do have to beat Milwaukee in a best two out of three playoff. They finished the year tied. The uh, Braves, who had obviously won the pennant the two years before that, won the World Series in 57, lost the World Series in 58. Uh, the Dodgers play them in a best two out of three with Al Lopez, the White Sox manager at uh, at least game one in Milwaukee, looking at the opponents, the uh, potential opponents, the Dodgers win game one, three to two uh, in Milwaukee. And then game two is at the LA Coliseum. And in 12 innings, the Dodgers win that one six to five. So two really close games, you know, two teams that played 154 games and finished tied and then played a playoff. And even though the Dodgers quote unquote swept, both games are one run games. I pulled up the, I have the dimensions here, LA, the LA Coliseum dimensions for baseball. Left field was 250 feet. Jeez. Left center was 320 at the end of the screen where the set, where the screen met the wall. T- center field was 425. So basically it was like, if you hit that screen, I think it was a single. Really? Yeah, it was that. That was the. I believe the the screen was definitely. If you hit the screen or hit it over the screen, it wasn't a. Let me get this because I know that the Dodgers and Red Sox played a game at the Coliseum like ten or twelve years ago, a spring training game with those dimensions, and this also that nineteen fifty nine World Series drew drew more than ninety two thousand people to those games. Yeah, so basically they moved there. Obviously, the goal was to end up at. Dodger Stadium, which had to be built, but they had, you know, crazy field with a big fence that things were not home runs if they went over the wall or if they hit the screen. It wasn't a full, it was a single or a double or, or whatever. I'm not going to belabor it looking for the exact dimensions, but certainly a different venue for a World Series game. All right. Why don't we go and kind of just give a quick recap? The White Sox win game one in Chicago led by two home runs by Klazuski. So he is already starting to pay off even in the first game of the World Series to put them out to a one nothing lead. Yeah, so and the Dodgers, you know, and the White Sox, obviously it's the first time they've been in the World Series for 40 years. So it's the first World Series game they've won in 40 years. First time they've hosted a game. 
And this is the game, as I mentioned, where Faber and Schalk uh, throw and catch the first pitch, and the White Sox end up winning eleven to nothing. <laughs> this the Wikipedia article lists three famous celebrities who were at the game: Joan Crawford, okay, Orson Welles, oh god, and 1952 and 1956 presidential candidate Adlai Stevenson. <laughs> Um, you know, it's funny you mentioned that. And if I can just kind of put my historian's hat on for a moment here, there was actually talk in 1960. I don't know how serious there was that Stevenson would actually run again, which would have just been, you know, the worst political decision in the history of mankind. But one of the notes that I have here is that for game two in Chicago, a Massachusetts senator by the name of John F. Kennedy is in. Mayor Daly, the mayor of Chicago, was in his box watching the game. So I wonder if Daly was making a political statement by having Kennedy in his box to watch the World Series. And it's also obviously, if you know history and you know presidential elections, Chicago and Illinois were a very big factor in the election of JFK to the presidency in 1960. So you, you can see sort of in addition to all the baseball, you can see the beginning stages of the 1960 presidential race in game two of the 1959 World Series, which incidentally is a Dodger win by the score of four to three. So a close most, game. To me, the most romantic part of that is that 13 months before the election, the campaign was just starting. Yeah, that's a fair we're, point. We're about six weeks away from, I think, the first debates of the next presidential election. Uh, so, so yeah, game two, the White Sox get up early. Um, they're up two to nothing. Dodgers get a run in the fifth and then three runs in the seventh, end up holding on to win four to three. The White Sox get one back in the eighth. Bob Shaw against Johnny Padres. Uh, Klazuski gets that first RBI in the first inning. Get a Sherm in the in the eighth when they're threatening Sherm Lawler gets thrown out. It says by a mile at the plate trying to score due to Wally Moon faking a catch that fooled Lawler, and they get shut down in the ninth. And the series heads to Los Angeles for the first World Series games ever played in California with the series at a flat-footed tie. The other thing that happens in that game too, and. People have seen this picture probably, even if you don't know exactly when it's from the in game two, the White Sox are up to nothing. And in the fifth inning, Charlie Neal of the Dodgers hits a home run to left field and a fan in trying to catch it knocks his beer over the railing and it pours it all over the head of Al Smith, who's the White Sox left fielder. And then, like I said, there's a famous picture, even if you don't know where it's from, that if you're a sports fan, you've probably seen. And it's of this beer cup just over the ledge and just this steady stream of beer landing on the head of Al Smith. So, like I said, you've probably seen this picture, even if you don't realize exactly where it's from. But it's this indelible moment from the 59 World Series. If, if you have a book on World Series history and you're flipping through Without fail, one of the pictures that they show in the two or three pages for 1959 is this picture of this beer being poured over Al Smith's head. So game three, it's Drysdale. We're, we're at the Coliseum, announced attendance, 92,394. Dick Donovan against Don Drysdale. It's scoreless going into the seventh inning. Donovan was throwing a one-hit shutout. Loads the bases in the seventh inning on two walks and a single. 
White Sox bring in Jerry Staley. Carl Ferrillo hits a single to score two runs. In the eighth, the White Sox have the bases loaded with no outs. They get just a run because there's a double play, and the Dodgers end up holding on. They win three to one. The White Sox stranded 11 runners, 0 for 7, uh, with runners in scoring position. And the Dodgers take the two to one lead in the series heading into game four. The 11 runners are all in the first six innings. And the White Sox, John Roseboro, the catcher for the Dodgers, who's a very, very, very good defensive catcher, throws out three runners trying to steal second base, including Aparicio and Fox. So he is kind of seen as the hero of that game, because if he hadn't thrown out some of those runners, especially with how many runners the White Sox got on base in the early innings, there's a good chance the Dodgers aren't able to hold on and win that game. So in the fourth or in game four, you got early win, Cy Young winner. The uh, White Sox really are in need of a win. Things really fall apart in the third inning. Of They're in need of a win and they have one starting. But it was he was good early. <laughs> struggled after that. Why do you always have to top me? Ruined my whole punchline. I ruined, you ruined my whole punchline. I do have to say when you were talking before about the Kennedy thing, I was going to say, your uncle made references to Sam Giancana. You mean the Kennedy assassination? <laughs> My husband was in grade school. <laughs> um, so, so they get win, you know, wins going, obviously the guy you're looking to have in a game, you really feel like you need to win down two to one in the series. Things fall apart in the third inning. The Dodgers end up scoring four runs in the third. Wally Moon singles and scores on Norm Larker's single. Larker advances to second on an error. Gil Hodges knocks him in. Uh, Hodges moves over on another base hit, scores on a pass ball, and then John Roseborough hits an RBI single. So it's they get four runs. The White Sox do come back and tie the game in the seventh inning. It's Ted Klazuski again with an RBI single, and then Sherm Lawler with a three-run home run. So the White Sox erase that disastrous early third or early deficit. They tie the game. And then Gil Hodges, he of the many, many years of Dodger defeats at the hands of the Yankees back in New York, and they finally get through in 55, has one last moment here, gets a home run to give the Dodgers a 5-4 lead in the eighth inning. Dodgers hold on in the ninth, get the win, and move to within one win of, I guess, their second world championship uh, in the last five years, but their what would be their first world championship in Los Angeles. Yep. And the Dodgers have Koufax going in game five. So the next day, October 6th, 1959, again, in front of a 92,000 plus crowd at the Coliseum in Los Angeles, they put out the SRO sign weeks ago. It's a one to nothing game. The Dodgers get no runs on nine hits. So they strand, obviously, a bunch of runners. Three pitchers combined for a shutout. Bob Shaw, Billy Pierce, and Dick Donovan. The only run of the game was Nellie Fox scored as Lawler grounded into a double play. This game is still the largest crowd in Major League Baseball. In World Series history will be impossible to top. You know, nobody stands, nobody stadium seats. I don't know if there's any that really seat 50,000 anymore, let alone 90,000. I should note that Joe DiMaggio is in L.A. for game five, but refuses to attend on the grounds that it was no place to see a ball game. And I would also note that Koufax, this is Koufax out there just to not go to the game. 
<laughs> you know, I don't rule it out. Uh, and Koufax. But the thing with in 77, when he was supposed to throw out the first pitch and like he had trouble getting into the stadium. So we just left and they had to like chase him down. Right. I remember that. Did he end up throwing that ball out or did they get yeah, some? I think they made it right. But so Koufax loses the game. His biographer, Jane Levy, in an excellent book about Koufax called Sandy Koufax, a lefty's legacy notes that maybe Koufax would have maybe his career would have gotten kickstarted a little sooner had he been actually been able to win a World Series game after pitching so excellently in in that game five. But it, it, his sort of real renaissance doesn't come for a couple years later. And then he wins a lot of World Series games in the 1960s. The pitcher Donovan, who beats Koufax in game five, the writers ask him how how he feels afterwards. And he said, how would you feel out there? I wasn't whistling Yankee Doodle, but he uh, he gets the one nothing win in game five to keep his team alive and uh, have them head back to Chicago. So if you're the White Sox, you think, all right, we're, you know, we still got our backs against the wall. We're going to have to win three straight games, but we're heading home. You know, I think there was, and probably rightfully so, a sort of thing of like, we were playing baseball in basically a carnival atmosphere, you know, mm-hmm. with the dimensions and the crowds and everything. And all right, we're going to be back in a real ballpark. The early win starts on two days rest. And really, this game is is pretty much a disaster. The White Sox, the Dodgers, get up to an eight nothing lead in the middle of the fourth. It's eight to three for most of the game. Dodgers had a run in the ninth. They end up winning nine to three. Not really a game that's ever in doubt. Obviously, once you get down eight to nothing, it's hard to even threaten to get back in. Relief pitcher Larry Sherry gets the win in relief. Two and zero. Record in the series allowed one run in 12 and two thirds innings and is named the most valuable player of the World Series. So the White Sox are back for the first time since 1919. They lose this time. There's no evidence that it was on purpose. You know, it's a great year. It's a, I don't want to say lightning in a bottle because you don't realize that at the time. And they also probably don't realize they're facing sort of a budding dynasty, although by 63, the team's a little bit different. You have to imagine the mood is not one more. It's there's disappointment, but it's like, hey, we just won the pennant. I think in a lot of ways, winning the pennant was a much bigger deal back then, especially in the middle of the Yankees monolith. Absolutely. And they stay pretty good for the next several years. They actually have a little bit of a dip. I mean, if you can call it a dip, they still win 85 games at least in 60, 61 and 62. And then in 63, 64 and 65, they are well over 90 wins. Lopez manages the team, I think, until 1965. And that was when they bring in some of these other guys, Hoyt Wilhelm, like I mentioned. I think that by this point, I think they also have Minnie Minoso, who is not a Hall of Famer, but one of these guys that everybody says is going to be in the Hall of Famer. I guess no, is Minnie Minoso is not on the team. When, when did he come to the White Sox? I should check that out. Um, in 64, when they finish in second, they finish just a game back of the Yankees. In 67, they're in fourth, but they're only three games back of the pen. And 67 was that crazy year where they were all in it until like the last week of the year. You know, so they, they maintain being a good team. Lopez is gone after 65. Eddie Stanky takes over. Lopez does manage to come back for 17 games in 1969. Um, but I think that was probably just a favor to finish out a season or something. Oh, no, I actually managed a little in 68, too. I didn't realize that. And just to close the loop on Minnie Minoso, he'd been on the team from 51 to 57 and then was gone in Cleveland for two years. 
they actually bring him back after this year for two years in 60 and 61. And then he's gone again. So yeah, another, another star of the white Sox of the early sixties, although not, not in 59. So yeah, they're, they're really good for most of the sixties. They're really good, but they don't, you know, they don't get over the hump. It's the Yankee dynasty gives way to the Orioles primarily. And, you know, obviously the twins and the Red Sox and the Tigers have some good years, but, um, you know, they're, they're a contender a lot of years. Like I said, a couple of times they come within a game or two games or something like that of actually winning the pennant 70, even as late as, you know, they, they have a dip a little in the late sixties. Once the division split in 69, they pretty much are well off the mark. In fact, in after 59, they don't make the playoffs again until 1983. 83, they are under the tutelage of their current manager, Tony Larusa. Um, they get to the American League Championship Series. They lose to the Orioles. They don't make the, planet, the playoffs again until 93. Uh, in 93, they lose in the American League Championship Series to the Toronto Blue Jays, who go on to win the World Series. One more playoff appearance in 2000. And then ultimately... Uh, win the World Series in 2005 for their first championship since 1917. Kind of interesting that, you know, it's the year after the Red Sox had very famously not won one since 1918, even though all along the White Sox hadn't won one since 1917. But between the Red Sox and the same team that plays in the same town as the Cub or as the White Sox, who had a lot more history and are a more popular team and are a more sort of cinematic team. The White Sox drought almost gets overlooked, but kind of some symmetry that them and the Red Sox break even they both hadn't won since a year apart in the teens, and then they break it a year apart in 2004 and 2005. So and when we did our 21st century moments uh, episode a few episodes back. We talked about how the Red Sox and the Cubs breaking their droughts were so much bigger moments than the White Sox and. We both knew it to be true, even if we couldn't exactly verbally say why. So, yeah. So, you know, the 59 team obviously is a team that holds a special place in. Well, and also if you think about it. So when was the last Cubs pennant? 45? Before 2016, yeah. So between 45 and 05, this was the only Chicago baseball pennant. That's a good point. Yeah. I didn't realize it like that, but if you think about it, there was no World Series games played in Chicago between 1940, except for this year, between 1945 and 2005. So what's that? 60 years, right? 60 years. So 120 seasons, basically. That's crazy. Uh, That is really crazy. And they know, we know they hold a special place in Ray's heart to our our fan who requested this episode. So Ray, uh, we hope you enjoyed it. Yep. So yeah, it was... um, you know, these one, and again, I know they were good a little before and a little after, but these one year sort of teams can be very, very interesting because if it's, especially again, if it comes in sort of a sea of not winning, you cling to what you have. And if you're a fan of a certain age, you obviously don't remember the 1919 team and it was a long ways away until even 83. This was your team. If you're if you're between like a twenty to thirty year age range in Chicago and you're a White Sox fan, this was your team. Yeah, it's like in Milwaukee they have the what's it the eighty two Brewers was the one team. It's, or even 
I know the Padres made it again in 98, but I think in 80, that 84 Padres team is the one that everybody in San Diego remembers so well. These cities sometimes, I think especially in baseball, if they have that kind of one shining team that just made it to the World Series the one time or may even just made it deep in the playoffs the one time, it's remembered very fondly. Because, like it's like you said, it's that one kind of magical season in the midst of a bunch of mediocrity. Exactly. All right. Well, uh, thanks again to our loyal listener Ray for requesting this episode. Like Andrew said, it's something that we may have touched on at one point, but something we probably definitely got. We, we probably wouldn't have gotten to this within our first forty episodes if it hadn't been requested. So. Thank you, Ray. Thank you all for listening. Remember to check us out. Hello, old sports gmail.com. You can comment on the sports history network page. You can find us on Facebook. Hello, old sports podcast. And uh, yeah, let us know what you like. Let us know what you don't like. And uh, if you want to hear an episode. So uh, until next time, I'm Dan Newman. And I'm Andrew Newman. Go, go, go White Sox. And goodbye, old sports. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the football history dude. And I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.